so thankful that uh, we get to just look at these constant threads throughout Scripture, that we get to look at these connecting ideas and thoughts and points, because each piece gives us just a little bit more of a glimpse into the character of God, the heart of God, the mind of God. And I think it's so hugely important that we just try to soak up everything that we can possibly soak up about God. Because I I truly believe that there is one truth. There are multiple interpretations of one truth, even though there's one truth. But the multiple interpretation oftentimes come from ignorance or come from a lack of understanding of the full nature and the full character of God. Now, I'm not by any means saying that we have it perfectly, but I am saying that our pursuit will, is now, and will forevermore be, as long as I'm in charge of these type things, um, learning and knowing as much about God as we can in order that we can truly see the full picture of this redemptive story. Last week we further discussed our role in salvation. And what we found out is we don't have one. We don't have one. We are needy, we're helpless, and yet loved. Having uh, been the father now of four humans who were babies at one time, I can confidently assert to you that at times, babies are overrated. All, all of the stuff that you have to clean up after and deal with is more work than it is joy at times. Um, I'll tell you what's not overrated, though. What's not overrated is looking at that helpless thing and loving he or she just as they are because they are a part of you. What's not overrated is the first time that you get to hold your child. It's in my experience um, that a baby doesn't really do much of anything in the pregnancy stage, but cause physical discomfort and anxiety at times because you're anxiously waiting for this baby. Now, I have, might have a more cynical or negative look at it than you do, but I'm just telling you the truth. This is how I feel. But you hold that baby for the first time, and the love that swells up in you cannot be described. It comes from deep down, and it starts just from knowing that that baby that you're holding is yours. They haven't done anything but they bring you an immense amount of joy because they're yours. You would do anything for that child. You would give up anything. You would change anything. On a different level, this must be how God feels. What we do on this earth can be anxiety-inducing for the average human. The way we keep ourselves at times would make a lesser parent want to give up. But here we have spent the last few weeks, and honestly, much of the New Testament 
seeing that God loves us. And He looks at us with a much deeper love than we even can look at our own children with. And the beauty of that love is it's based on no merit, but simply because we are His. We are His own. We are a part of Him, justified by His great work. And what we found out, what we found out is, and what we find out as we go through the entire New Testament, and we find out that it's the story of the Old Testament is, that He looks at us so lovingly that He would give up anything and everything. And that's just what He did. Today we will look more into this and we will expound on this theological idea of justification by looking at how Abraham was justified. We'll look at the justification of Abraham today and sort of expound on that idea of justification. Will you pray with me this morning? God, would you teach us from your word? Would you help us to have open hearts and open minds so that we can learn of you? Lord, so that we can know that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. That you have rest for us. That it's better to be one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That the commands that you have for us are not burdensome, but they're something that we begin to love and enjoy and obey because of the love and the joy that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. Would you help us to devour your word, Lord? But not only that, would you help us to just soak it in so that we can just take all of the nutrients from it, take all of the goodness from it. Lord, even though times your word is difficult, It's hard to swallow. Would you help us to eat our vegetables too, Lord? Help us not just to want the sweet and the the nice things of the Word, but help us to want the things that that are helpful even if they're hard to hear. Lord, help us to love you more every day and love others as we love ourselves. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The tendency for us as we get into books or letters like Romans that are heavy on the theology is to say or think, I wonder when something a little more practical is going to come up. Uh, I need something that's going to help me today. Now, I see how the theology can help me over time, but what about this is going to help me today? Um, I want to challenge you as I've challenged myself because I've struggled with this that if you have this question, that you would look at the theology of Romans and other epistles and the Gospels as the basis for all practical Christian knowledge. Our theology is the basis for how we follow Christ practically at all. How is it that we can know that we should live and obey His Word? if we don't understand our great indebtedness for the work that He has done for us in our life? Why would we go on after we keep failing, after we can't measure up to His standard, if we didn't know that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? 
If our theology is not right, certainly, friends, we would give up too quickly. How can we live overwhelmingly abundant lives and lives as overcomers if we can't see the victory that is won through Jesus both now and forever? Practically, we cannot live our lives in faith unless we understand the theology behind our faith. Our theology truly teaches us to understand to understand God's motives and his movements. Now that being said, today we will look at more theology covering our faith. And Paul here uses two men to confirm his message. He uses Abraham and he uses David. Abraham more so than David, but he uses Abraham and David. These two men are stalwarts of the faith. Abraham, because he was the father of the people of God, both the Jewish people and subsequently us through the work of Jesus. Abraham was the man of all men in the Jewish faith. There were Jews who still uh, tracked their lineage directly back to Abraham. Remember, before the destruction of the temple, the lineage of the Jewish people was like no other. There were people who still tracked their line, their family line, back to Abraham. Many people even um, on some level, like um, people idolize, excuse me, that was where I was before, idolized Mary and other figures within, throughout history. Many people idolized Abraham. As a matter of fact, even in Jewish, Muslim, and Christian cultures, Abraham is seen as a great man of faith to be looked towards. This was the perfect person for Paul to pick to nail down his idea about justification through Christ alone. He also chooses David. I think he chooses David because he is a man after God's own heart. But also because Jesus was born of the line of David. And although David was considered probably the greatest king of the Jewish nation until Jesus came, of course... He was put into submission to his Lord, and that was God the Father through Jesus Christ. So we have these two giants of faith with sort of a special focus on Abraham and how he was justified. And I want to take that, and I want to look at Abraham's justification today. And I have three historical truths about Abraham's justification that I want to give you today that we can focus on, we can be reminded of, and we can learn from. The first historical truth I want to point out today is that is the Jewish belief in the origin of Abraham's justification. I want to look at the Jewish belief in the origin of Abraham's justification. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So what was the Jewish belief about Abraham? The Jewish belief about Abraham was this. Paul is teaching a foreign concept. Because the Jewish belief was that Abraham was the best of the best, that God chose Abraham because he stood out amongst all of the people. The Jewish people held Abraham as the perfect example of someone who was saved by the law or saved 
by works. They believed that Abraham had earned the favor of God. So Paul brings up Abraham to show everyone, but specifically the Jewish people in this instance, that Abraham, like everyone else in the history of the world, was not saved by his own works, was not saved by what he could do. He was not called out by God because God saw something special in him. Do you know Abraham's background? I'm telling you, the way people talked about Abraham for much of my life, I thought Abraham like came from this Christian town, this Christian village, and he was just happily worshiping God when God called him out. This isn't the truth. Do you know that about Abraham? Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was a polytheistic a nation. Abraham worshipped the moon. Abraham worshipped multiple gods. I mean, I'm sitting here in Sunday school thinking Abraham was called out, this good little boy. He was a part of this, not Christian, but he was a part of this, you know, God-believing nation. And Abraham is an idolater. And yet he's called out. Before God stepped in, Abraham worshipped multiple gods. Abraham worshipped the moon. Had not God called him out from this land in a time of the Lord's choosing? It is true then, friends, that Abraham would have never been justified. The truth is that Abraham was one of billions of victims of the sin of Adam. Abraham was a child of depravity just like you and I. Paul reinforced about Abraham what he does about us, <clears throat> what he does about us and our justification with this question. He says, "Does Abraham have anything to boast about? Is Abraham not like the rest of us?" Does the idol worshiper have anything that he can place before God as good works that God would find acceptable and pleasable and say, oh yeah, Abraham, this is why you're being used. Paul says Abraham may be able to boast about some things, but not before God. What he's saying is Abraham, you know, good dude, he had land, he had a life, He may can boast about those things, but he can't boast about anything that would matter before God. Anything that would matter as it pertains to his justification. Abraham is an extreme example of faith. He is in the, in Hebrews 11, which we'll look at in a minute, he's in the hall of faith. And yet Paul says, Abraham still ain't got it without God. He was the head of the Jewish nation. He was a stalwart of faith. And Paul went to great length to break down the fact that Abraham was a bankrupt sinner who needed God to intervene in order to be saved just like everyone else. So even though the Israelites held Abraham at the highest of seem, God saw Abraham as he was. So that even Abraham had nothing to boast about before God. You do this, right? I mean, you get why he used Abraham, right? You do this as as an example. Like when a kid is trying to convince their parents of something, like they use the best kid they know, right? I used to do this all the time. 
so-and-so's parents let them do this, like you respect those parents, so automatically you should do, to which my parents annoyingly answered, I'm not so-and-so's parents. All right, yeah. I still have PTSD from that. Um, so, so but, but this is what we do this all the time. And this is what Paul is doing. Paul is trying to show, I mean, not in that little childish way. Paul is trying to show that, look, this is the dude of the dudes. If you're going to look for, to somebody for faith, this is the person you should look to. And he missed the mark. Certainly, if Abraham, the father of this nation, to which we belong now because of Christ, has no righteousness of his own, surely if he has nothing that he can boast about before God, then we must be bankrupt also. There are people all around us that are looking for their own justification. The Catholic Church says it's faith plus belief in the church and submission to the church and the different ordinances and works, but not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Seventh-day Adventists observe eating restrictions, the dietary laws and Jewish dietary laws and restrictions, but these are works. These things which Christ has fulfilled cannot fill our cup where righteousness belongs. The Church of Christ believes that you must be a part of their church only in order to be saved and you must be baptized into their church, which is heresy, by the way. They make their faith and their baptism a work at the minimum, which no man will be saved that way. But if we are honest with ourselves, we have a faith problem Also, we understand grace through faith, and yet practically we live as if we play a role in our own justification. We sneak little deeds into the mix, and we think we're coy about it. We think we're just just kind of sneaky and tricky. As if the explanation and understanding of God's love couldn't be more thorough and complete, we say, Lord, here's my church attendance to go along just in case. Or here's some charity. Here's a social cause that I'm a part of. We sneak in our works because, friends, the greatest temptation of mankind is to replace the role that Christ places, plays at, as Savior and place ourselves in that role. The greatest temptation of prideful mankind is to replace Christ. Christ's role as Savior and place ourselves in that role. Many of the Jewish people made an idol of Abraham and we might be quick to judge if we didn't do the same of ourselves or of other people. Do you know why works don't work? It's because works are only good if they can be maintained perfectly forever. Some of you are in sales positions or you have been in the past. Sales positions are cool because you make money, sometimes a lot of money, and money buys things and you get to interact with people. But I've been in sales and really that's about it. Sales positions are almost a perfect parallel though to works-based salvation. Works-based salvation only works if you can maintain works perfectly throughout life, which is what your sales manager would request of you if you're in a sales position. 
I've heard this a thousand times, as I know some people in here have, but you're only as good as your last sale, or you're only as good as your last month. If you were the best salesman last month, you were celebrated for like half a second. But if you're the worst salesman this month, you're going to be threatened to be fired. Now imagine if your manager came in, if you've been in sales, if you're in sales, imagine if your manager came in and says, I love you so much that I want you to know that if you never, you will never have to make another sale to please me. We will still have the same standards, we'll have the same goals, but I want you to know that you will have a job no matter what because I love you. Can you imagine the weight that would be lifted from you? You would no longer have to sell to get the approval of the manager. You would no longer have to sell for fear of being cast out by the manager. But on some level, a person who had experienced that type of love and that type of commitment would still sell at a high rate because of the love that he felt. Now, we don't live in a perfect world, and a manager of a sales comp- a company that was driven by sales would never do that. But also the average employee would probably take advantage of that too. But in every way, in almost every way, it's an image of what God has done for us. Works-based leaves us in constant fear of being fired. Grace-based is motivated by the love and kindness of the boss. I want to ask you, friends, which type of pressure do you want to live under? Do you want to live under the pressure that I'm only as good as my last month? And at any moment I could be cut off. Or do you want to live under the pressure that I am under love and under grace? And even though I can't be cut off, because of the Father's love, because of the manager's love, I'm going to do for him my best. Do you want to live under the fear that the boss might strike you down for slipping? Or do we want to serve the boss because he loves us and we want to please him as a means of returning that love to him? I know which one I want. I know which one I want. And the Jewish people believed that the way to be like Abraham and the way to obey God was the first. And Paul comes along and says, look, Abraham, you got this wrong about Abraham because he was not justified in the way you believe. He was justified in a different way. And that's the second idea. And that's the actual origin of Abraham's justification. The actual origin of of Abraham's justification. Look at verse 3. Chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness. So what was the actual origin of Abraham's justification? Well, Paul asked an important question that we should ask 
when this question about God arises. He said, as our friend Morgan would say, what do the scriptures say? Now, Morgan's asking that in a whole sense, like what do the scriptures say? But literally, Paul is asking, what does this particular scripture about Abraham's justification say? He's asking about one scripture, and it should be very familiar to you right now. He's asking about Genesis fifteen six. He's saying, what does this scripture say about Abraham, how Abraham was justified? Genesis fifteen six answers that question for Paul. Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. As, <coughs> as we look throughout the history of the calling of Abraham and understand it properly, we can only come to one conclusion. What we see is that God called Abraham out of a pagan land and it was by faith that Abraham was, justed, uh, uh, was justified. By faith and by faith alone. Faith was the catalyst then for every good work of Abraham. It was at this point that we should remember what we see in Ephesians 2 that even faith is a gift of God. If it is if it was by faith that Abraham was justified, what specifically did that faith lead Abraham to do? Well, Hebrews 11 sort of lays that out. Hebrews 11 lays out what this faith led Abraham to do. And I want to read that for you. You can turn there real quickly if you want to. Really quickly. Hebrews 11. I'm going to start in verse 8. And I mean quickly because I don't wait. In Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews is telling a story of the lineage of faith. This is the hall of fame of faith. And then he gets to Abraham and this is what he says in Hebrews 11. Eight. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and whom as good as and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as men as, as excuse me and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore these all died in faith not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham then, he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac you shall, shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What does the author of Hebrews say? That by faith Abraham left his home to go to a land that he did not know. A land, I don't know if you caught this in Hebrews 11, that he did not inherit himself. Neither did Jacob. 
Neither did Isaac, neither did Jacob. Excuse me. Abraham left his homeland, left a land he did not know, to inherit a land that he did not receive. Because his mind and his heart and his attitude was fixed, what did the author of Hebrews say? On a heavenly place. And God regarded him highly because his mind was fixed heavenward. By faith he and Sarah believed that they would have a child when childbearing was impossible. They were past the age of being able to have children. By faith he offered up Isaac, believing that the Lord was going to make a nation from his offspring, just as he said. And even though he had never witnessed resurrection of the dead, believed that the Lord could raise him from the dead if he wanted to. The depth of Abraham's faith proves to me and many others that this faith was not a faith of his own. If this faith was a faith of his own, if Abraham needed to produce this out of the depths of his heart and out of the depths of his soul, he would have died a pagan worshiper in the land of Ur. It was a precious faith gift that saved Abraham. Just as the father of faith <coughs> was saved, so shall we also be. Abraham's faith was a gift, and that faith led to other things. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him. It was counted to him as righteousness. And if we believe God, it will be through faith. It will be counted to us as righteousness. It will be reckoned to us as righteousness. That word reckoned or counted is, uh, or accounted or however you want to say it, however you want to look at it, is um, used nine times in Romans chapter 4. It simply means that Abraham's faith was credited, credited to him as righteousness. This is literally moving something from one person's account to another person's account. This is going from God's full account to Abraham's bankrupt account. His, Abraham's account that was full of works and yet empty could not save him. And God called him, and I know that this is hard for us to see on some level, but God called him, and the moment from which God called him, Abraham's account was full. It was not that Abraham first believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. It was that God called Abraham out of this pagan land, which gave Abraham the ability to believe, and he was justified by faith after that calling of God. He went from being bankrupt to being righteous because it was credited to him by God. Friends, Abraham, this stalwart of faith, the story of Abraham tells us something that is absolutely true and necessary in our life. If we are to be people of faith, it must be credited to us out of the bank account of Jesus Christ. If we are to be people of faith, it must be his righteousness taken from his account and put in ours. It is imputed to us through Christ. The beauty of what Paul says in Romans 4 cannot be lost on us. Even the father of faith was justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and yes, as we talked about last week or the week before, in Christ alone. 
If the father of faith was justified this way, should anyone else expect to be justified in any other way? Can we fill our own accounts? Is there anything on this earth that can fill our bank accounts? Is there anything on this earth that can first make us worthy before God? But secondly, and on a practical level, is there anything on this earth that can fulfill us enough to give us peace on this earth? Can any marriage, can a child, can friends, can money, can some form of esteem or notoriety or accomplishment, can any of those things fill us to give us peace? They first and foremost can't fill us fill our account to give us peace with God. But secondly, and just as importantly on a practical level, they cannot fill us to give us peace on this earth. No one that I've ever known that is searching and longing for peace has ever been peaceful because their bank account is full. The house is just the right size. As a matter of fact, it just takes a little examination and truthfulness of our own heart and a little examination of others to see that at every level of prosperity, our human minds seek another level. Peace with God and peace in our own hearts only come from trusting and looking towards and leaning into that account that Christ gives to us. The last thing I want you to look at is the results of Abraham's justification. Look at verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works, then he goes, David, this is mentioned to David in Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will count will not count his sin. Paul then turns his attention to Israel's second greatest king and says, in doing so, he point, excuse me, he turns his attention to um, Israel's second greatest king, and in doing so, he points out three special things about the gospel that were true of Abraham, is true of David, and will be true of us. If our bank account is full of the righteousness of God through Christ, Psalm 32, our sins are forgiven, our sins are covered, and our sins are not counted against us. Our sins are forgiven, our sins are covered, and our sins are not counted against us. Verse 7 says, Blessed are those who lawless, whose lawless deeds are forgiven. There are only two options for the human condition, and that is either blessed or cursed. And only those whose sins are forgiven are blessed. And only those who are blessed have their sins forgiven by Jesus Christ. But for those who are blessed, for those who are forgiven, their lawless deeds are forgiven. All of their lawless deeds are forgiven. Friends, you need to know and you need to just soak this up. Because here's the deal. There are people in this room, I would say everyone in this room, 
is reacting and acting and responding to life circumstances today because of a hurt or a situation from the past. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are people in this room right now who are responding and reacting today because they are still experiencing trauma from sin in their past. There are people in this room right now who are responding and acting today because they are still experiencing trauma from some family relationship or some things out of their control in the past. Friends, the beauty of Christ is that blessed is the person whose past, whose present, and future is forgiven. And the beauty of Christ is this. Christ died for you before you could sin. I know that you know that, but do you think about that a lot? He died for you before you could sin. And so you look at yourself and you say, look what I've done. To which we always have to respond, look what he did before you could do what you've done. Your sins are forgiven before you committed them if you are the blessed one who is in Christ. Your sins were forgiven. Your sins were covered. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose all of their lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Our sins are covered. They are taken care of through Christ. There are three transfers I want you to understand that happen in your life if you are in Christ. The first, or two of, two of the three happen for everybody, and one happens for those who are in Christ. The three transfers are this. There is the transfer of Adam's sin onto us. The transfer of Adam's sin onto us. Therefore, we are all guilty. And then there are the transfers of Adam's sin that are on us, which become our sin, onto Christ. The transfer of Adam's sin onto us, the transfer of our sin onto Christ. And for those who are in Christ, there is the transfer of Christ's righteousness to us. It is through that third transfer that we are saved, we are redeemed, we are blessed, we are covered, friends. One theologian put it this way. We know today's generation can't stand lectures. We're trying to get your attention like hand gestures. The truth is close like London is to Manchester. To understand better, consider our ancestor, Adam. It took place in the Garden of Eden. Y'all know the story how Satan was talking to Eve then. The snake had her all deceived. Then she ate and he ate. God had decreed that would, uh, excuse me, God had decreed that that would make all of us heathens. Romans 5, 12, really got my dome spinning. Adam's descendants didn't die for their own sinning. But there is this thing that you must pay attention to. Although you weren't there, Adam represented you. Now God is free. He doesn't need an apology for those who struggle, though I'll make a quick analogy. Think logically before you criticize. One player commits a foul and the whole team gets penalized. We were in need of another representative to live the perfect life that none of us could ever live. Because if we were going to be freed from our distress, from our distress, both sides of the situation needed to be addressed. We need a substitute in our place to be killed. 
Plus, we need the broken law to be obeyed and fulfilled. And as Jeremiah prophesied of this, that the Lord himself would be our righteousness. Then he goes on to say, So now astoundingly Christ's righteous salary and Calvary counts for me. Praise the living God for his amazing wisdom. We get credit for somebody else's work like plagiarism. But he does it righteously for the worst of all heathens based on 33 years of perfect law keeping believing in Jesus has crazy perks and I guess that you could be say you could say that we've been saved by works his friends our sins are covered our sins are forgiven our sins are not counted against us just like they were not counted against Abraham. This is why confidently Christ could say to those that he healed, go and sin no more. It wasn't with a confidence that they would never sin, but it was with this confidence. Even though you sin, you are in me and you are covered as if you were never going to sin again. Do you understand that? Christ can confidently say to us, go and sin no more, because he is our righteousness. He knows how we're saved. He knows what keeps us. And even though we're imperfect, he knows what redeems us. Not because we would never sin, but because we would live a life modeled by grace. We would be seen in the eyes of God as sinless because we are covered in the blood of Jesus. This is why you hear things like, he put our sin as far as the east is from the west. The Proverbs say he puts our sins behind his back. He forgets them. The funny thing is, when we have a bankrupt, empty bank account, and he fills our bank, he looks at it, not for what it was, Empty, bankrupt, inept, no purchase history. But he looks at for what it is, full. And I want to tell you, friends, the righteousness of God comes in you the very first time he calls you, and it stays in you until you meet with him again someday. Trust in that, hope in that, believe in that. Abraham is in the hall of faith, friends, because he believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Hey, you will be in the hall of faith too, just simply doing the same thing. Pray with me. God, help us to trust you literally and fully and really transfer our trust to you. Everything, every day, every time, every minute. And when we lose that, help us to stop, help us to pray, help us to refocus. Lord, help us not to live our lives semi-victorious. But help us to live abundantly victorious because of the work you've done in and through us. We love you. We praise you. We give you the glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.